So if you don't speak Hebrew, you may be wondering sometimes, what are some of these words that we sing? One of the songs we sang in the middle of that worship set is titled Jaira. And the name comes from a, a, a title or a praise name that Abraham gave to God, Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord who provides. So if you know the uh, story of Genesis chapter 2, this is that very confusing passage where the Lord tells Abraham to take his son Isaac, who's been born when Abraham is 100 years old, and the son that they thought would never come, and to take him onto the top of a mountain and to sacrifice him to the Lord. And Abram lays his son out on the altar, and then God speaks through an angel and says, don't you dare lay a hand on that boy. And just about that time, he finds a ram that's caught in a thicket, and he knows he's supposed to offer that, that ram instead. And he realized that he'd been tested in that moment, that God never intended him to, to kill his son. And that takes place on Mount Moriah. And so when Abraham kindles that fire to offer the ram as a sacrifice. He names that place Jehovah-Jireh, and he, he gives that name to God, meaning the God who provides. Well, what Abraham didn't know was how the rest of the story would play out, that God was instead choosing to send his own son to die, not Abraham's son, which is where the rest of the message and the New Testament comes in. Years later, the words for that song stunned me one day when I I found a topographical map of Jerusalem. And you know what a topographical map is. It shows you the different height elevations of the city. And there are a series of, of hills or small mountains that are built in around Jerusalem. And Jesus was crucified on what is sometimes called Mount Calvary, but not too far away, I realized, was Mount Moriah. And it had never hit me before. I'd never connected Genesis 22 and, and Jehovah Jireh's title with Jesus dying on the cross. And I realized when I saw that topographical map that as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was looking out towards Mount Moriah where God had rescued Abraham that day. And when Abraham had proclaimed to the world, God is enough, he always supplies. So you're not just singing empty words, you're not just singing meaningless words when we choose uh, some of these songs, and I have no doubt that that's partly why Dave Bailey chose that particular song for today. This morning we're going to wrap up our Identity Check series, and the topic today is loved and loving. Each week we've been trying to figure out who are we as Christians, trying to make sure that we understand our identity, because the more we understand our identity in Christ the more we're able to navigate all the challenges and the changes of the world around us. So the passage this morning that we're going to focus on is 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 21. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love 
because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen, have they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Let's pray. Good morning, Lord. We thank you for allowing us to call on your name and to praise you. Sometimes the songs evoke stories of old, like this one with Abraham and Isaac. Sometimes they remind us of great acts that you have already done on our behalf. Sometimes the songs point us forward as we think about eternity with you, as we think about what it's like to live a life of faith right through to the end. My prayer this morning is that as we gather, you allow us to have a sense of your presence among your people. Thank you for being the God who forgives as we turn away from our sins. Thank you for being the God who reminds us that we have a purpose and we have meaning in life because there are roles that you have for each of us to play and that you want to use our stories. Thank you, God, for the hope that you give us to rise above the challenges and the difficulties and the disappointments of life, for they are all around us. Thank you for revealing to us that you love your people. This morning as we dive into this passage, that you will allow us to see more than we've seen before about how greatly you, you love us and how you equip us to love others. Give us the heart and the commitment and the desire to live for you and to rely on you and to live in you. Increase our understanding, increase our faith, increase our love. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to start with this quote from C.S. Lewis this morning. I put it on the front of the notes that you got as you walked in. He wrote, the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, God's love for us does not. That is an amazing statement. Our feelings will change. They're up and down. They're all over the place. But God's love does not change. It doesn't come and go. It is always there. A retired pastor, Jim Keegan, commented on that quote. This is what he wrote about it. This quote encapsulates the essence of God's perfect love. It is constant, unwavering, and reliable. It is not swayed by our emotions or circumstances. It is a love that remains steadfast, regardless of our feelings or our actions. It is a love that frees our souls from the bondage of fear, insecurity, and doubt. Why tell you this? Why start this way? Well, in recent years, I have witnessed the devastation of a handful of friends who grew up hearing about Jesus and knowing and tasting the love of God, yet went on to reject it all. Why did they do that? Oh, there are a handful of reasons that are always claimed. Some are convinced of the impossibility of any supernatural power that is necessary for there to be a divine creator or for miraculous healings by Jesus or the Easter morning resurrection. For others, there was an unwillingness to embrace the moral conviction behind any one of the Ten Commandments. 
Pick one and somebody will be upset that that commandment is still there. Or others still, they came to a position that held that the gospels were made up. The product of stories told and embellished over decades or centuries that cannot possibly be true. Some of these friends, truth be told, have been able seemingly to live life well after walking away from all that early biblical training. But I've also had proximity to see where some of these friends find their foundations do not hold as life's harder chapters begin to unfold for them. The worst of these moments is to watch when they become convinced that they are not loved, that they are alone in this world, that they've become unredeemable, that they are not loved by God. Fewer things are harder to watch or to hear. We try to assume that they have never, uh, we try to assure them rather that they have never strayed so far that God cannot reach back and enfold them. If only they'll take that first step toward him, toward grace, toward God, toward love. But something holds them back. Pride, stubbornness. They become convinced that they are unloved and unlovable. So it's with these experiences in mind that I bring up the final topic in our Identity Check series, Our topic today is loved and loving. So let me just say good morning to all of you. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm glad to see that your faces, uh, faces. I'm glad to to worship with you as we we sing to God and we lift our praises to him. Some do that quietly, learning the words of a a song and and just barely moving your lips. And others, it's like a full body experience in praising God. And it all works together and it's, it's just wonderful to watch. And for me to be in the midst of that and be surrounded by that. For those of you who are watching online, we're glad that you are doing the best that you can to, to make this a part of your life. And I, I hope that this morning you're able to enter in and, and not just watch from a distance, but to turn your living room or your kitchen or wherever you're watching into a place of, of worship today. Especially if you're online, but if you're here as well and you haven't checked in with us, I'd love to be in dialogue with you. If you scan that cue card or if you click on the link for a connection card or if you send me an email at paul at northriverchurch.org i'd love to get your information and begin that conversation with you every week there's a question that i try to raise that is at the heart of the message i think the question for today is when we think of god's love what can we bank on what can you know that you can really trust right to the end. Because let's face it, people don't remember whole sermons. No matter how hard people like me try to craft them, what we do remember are some of our questions and remember some of the bullet points that answer those questions, which is why I raise them. So when we think of God's love, what can we bank on? I'd like to talk about loved and loving, five things that we can bank on that are related to that. First, we are loved because God loves the whole world. The most well-known verse of the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Most of our Bibles view this verse as part of John's commentary, which follows an eye-opening conversation that took place between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a well-respected teacher among Jerusalem's elite in the first century, 
and he was curious enough to seek out a private meeting with Jesus where he noted that Jesus must be sent by God because no one could do such miracles apart from the power of God. Following up in this conversation, John clearly states that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. This reveals that there is a level of God's love that applies to the whole world, to everyone. The concept of the world here is used in a variety of ways in the Bible, so we have to interpret that by context. Here it means the people of our world, all of them. When you think about it, whether people believe in the God of the Bible or not, all of them receive some measure of God's love simply by existing in this world with all of its beauty and all of its provisions. Think of Abraham on the top of that mountain that day saying, God, you are enough. I found in the moment of desperation when you provide exactly what I need. And our God does that. And every time he does that, he is showing his love for all people. Therefore, the offer of eternal life is extended to everyone. Everyone who believes in Jesus as the Son of God, as our Savior, that's the pathway for receiving it. But the offer goes out to everybody, whether they take it up or not. And sadly, not all will take the Lord up on this promise. In a very real sense, every person in the world should be seen as valued by us because they are loved by God, which helps break down the tribalism that we sometimes fall into. John wrote this even though he knew that the world had been impacted by rebellion, even though many people love darkness more than light. That's the way he opened his gospel. Yet, God's soul loved the world. So Jesus told parable about rebellious and stubborn sons who are still loved by the Father. He broke from his traveling and teaching schedule in order to eat and talk with people who are seen as outcasts of society. He still spent far more time teaching and training his disciples, but he made time for a handful of tax collectors, lepers, and those who were caught in morally compromising situations, even though his critics lambasted him for the company that he kept. You will meet Christians who will try to persuade you that God hates our culture and that the church's role is to continue to, to hammer away with rebuke and condemnation for everybody. But that's not what John writes. He writes that God so loved this awful broken world with people who pushed God away. He still loves everyone. And Jesus saved his harshest rebukes for religious folks who ignored justice or who pushed people away from God's compassion or try to make our religion something that is so difficult that people can't find their way to God. We are loved because God loves the whole world you can bank on this. Second, we are loved because God sent his son. Go back to that same verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In this verse, John used the Greek word agape that speaks of sacrificial love. It's not just any kind of love. The love of God goes far beyond brotherly or parental or erotic love. This is love of a divine kind. It's a costly, self-giving, other-centered, sacrificial love. This love is seen in God's willingness to send his one-of-a-kind son, whom we know as Jesus. Why did Jesus come? He came to reveal the true nature of God. He came to explode false concepts about who God is, and he came to demonstrate God's love. That love for people led Jesus to the cross, 
And on that day, Jesus became our redeemer. He satisfied all the requirements to redeem rule-breaking, command-breaking people from the destructive ravages of sin in all of its addictive forms. And we are all addicts in one way or another to some branch of sin. The only difference is how. Jesus never brings up the sinfulness of the human race in order to belittle us or to shame us, but rather to free us. So he brings up our sins in order to show us how, to, how they pry us away from God's love. He brings them up to reveal our need for God's mercy and grace. He brings them up to lead us to turn from destructive ways and to choose instead the way of Jesus. You have never been loved more at any time than you are right now by Jesus. I like the way that Tim Keller used to put it. You are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe and more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the gospel, both sides of it. And you can bank on this. We are loved, you are loved, because God sent his son. Third, we rely on his love and live in his love. So we go back to this primary passage of 1 John 4 that I read a moment ago. Let me just read a few verses here, starting with verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him, and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. First, look at the proposition that is found in verse 15. It says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. God wants us to acknowledge that Jesus is more than a good teacher. He is the Son of God. Now, this is a hang-up for some people. If Jesus is merely a good man or a good teacher, then we can take parts of the Bible or parts of his teaching, the, the, the stuff that we like, and we can ignore the rest. But if Jesus is the Son of God, if he really is, then everything that he says is authoritative. They are the words from God. And therefore, we must submit to his wisdom and his teaching. I have a friend who's stuck on this point. He loves many of the teachings about Jesus. He might even say that he loves Jesus. He reads the Bible. I've been involved in a Bible study with him. But he's not willing to embrace the Gospels as fully trustworthy accounts or the letters of the New Testament, specifically from Paul, as authoritative instructions for life. And he's always pushing back against it. Imagine being in a Bible study who's, with somebody who's, who's constantly saying, I don't think this is true. It kind of makes it a challenging group to be in. Anyone who acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God commits to his way. When we do this, God lives in us and we live in God. God reveals this reality through the presence and working of the Holy Spirit in your life. He guides us into truth. He convicts us of God's words and where we need to change. We don't need to do that to each other because God's Spirit is at work doing that. John writes that when we do this, we come to rely on the love that God has for us. To rely on his love implies that his love becomes a source of strength for us. 
It is his love that makes us feel secure. Not our own performance, but his love makes us feel secure where we are. And we don't just rely on his love. John says in this same statement that we live in his love. Being loved by God becomes a way of life. So he's not just calling us to a set of beliefs. He's actually calling us to a way of life. Some people miss all of that. We get the sense that if I just say the words that I believe in Jesus or I, I whisper a prayer that I'm, I'm trusting him, then, then we've arrived. But no, that's just the entry point into a way, into a life. And Christian life is following the way of Jesus. Being loved by God becomes a way of life. The assurance of his love is something that we carry with us wherever we go day by day. And that not only affects us, it affects those who are around us when we choose to live that way. So you can bank on this, that you can rely on God's love and that you can live in God's love, that it's not something that just happens inside the walls of a church, but it's something that you carry with you every single moment of every day wherever you go. Fourth, God is at work making love complete in us. Verses 17 and 18. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Here is one of God's goals for every Christian. You might have been wondering, well, what are his goals for me? And, and what does he have planned out for me? And John is telling us that God is at work right now, making his love complete in you. Now, there's nothing deficient or incomplete about God's love. It's not his love that needs to be completed. It's our experience of his love, our understanding of it. So not only God is completing the good work that he started in you, which we talked about at the beginning of this series, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it and to carry it out to completions until the, the day of Christ Jesus. So not only is he doing that, but he's also completing our understanding and our experience of this great sacrificial love. This morning we sang about another purpose of God that he, he makes me brave well, he's not only making you brave, he's making you complete in his love, little by little, week in by week out, month in by, by month out. This is one of the reasons why God allows us to go through difficult times in our lives. It is in those moments when we have to rely upon his love to get through that God stretches our capacity. If every day was sunshine and roses, we would not realize how much we need the Lord. But relying on his love in those times makes us stronger and more complete. These moments of relying on his love deepen our compassion for other people. It's this kind of love that drives out all fear. Assurance of God's love draws us closer to him and drives away all fear of punishment. God wants us to choose to obey him out of love, not out of irrational fears of a vengeful God who, can't, who just can't wait to punish. The Christian who is consumed with ideas of God's punishment ends up never fully appreciating the depth and radical nature of God's agape love. 
And so John is telling us here that we need to move beyond that fear and move deeper into the love that we can rely on. And as that happens, God is making his love more and more complete in us. So you can bank on this. God is at work right now completing his love in you. He's not done. You're not there yet. He'll be stretching our capacity to understand his love and then to give away his love until the day that we die. It's probably a good idea to introduce the, the big idea for this morning. God's love for his people is so great that he frees us and empowers us to love others generously. That leads into the final observation. We can love others generously because he first loved us. I love verse 19. John writes, we love because he first loved us. That is one of the most important truths in the entire New Testament. If you're not somebody who memorizes a whole lot of scripture, memorize this simple sentence, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Would you say that with me? We love because he first loved us. Who was loved first? Who? You were loved first. Before you loved God, God loved you. That's what that's saying. He didn't say, well, I'll love these people if, if they show me some measure of love, if they start to turn toward me and they exalt my name. I'll love them in response. That's not what it says. It says, we love because he first loved us. God's the initiator, in other words. He's the one who starts it all. And it's usually a response to his love that causes us to ponder more deeply his love for us and what we should do with that. The next verse goes on to say, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Here is one of the greatest truth statements in the entire Bible. We love because he first loved us. We love God because he went first and showed his love to us, scandalously, recklessly, without counting the cost. Paul even writes in another place that he has lavished his love on us. Isn't that a great word, to lavish love on somebody? That has the idea of being an extravagant giver, an extravagant lover, and we're in this receiving mode of that lavishing. And we love others and we have the capacity to love others because he loved first. We're never told that we have to love others before being loved by God. We love others because we have been lavishly loved by God. And we don't only love those who love us first, we emulate God by loving others before they love us, by loving first, whether they deserve it or not. Do you realize that's what God is trying to do in us? That's what he's trying to complete in us is, is experiencing that kind of love so that we become first lovers, not just responsive lovers. Of course, we're always in response to him, but toward others, we're allowed to go first. God loved us first when we didn't deserve it, the Bible is saying. Now, John includes this command at the end. Anyone who loves God must also love his brother and sister. It's a command that we want to obey because we've been loved first. It's a command that we are able to obey because we've been loved first. It's a command that should mark the way that we live because we've been loved first. 
It's a command that we should be known for because we have been loved first. You want to know what North River is becoming over time and what we want to be known for? It's loving others first because we've been first loved by God. God's love for his people is so great that he frees us and empowers us to love others generously. Okay, so what does it look like when someone is loved so greatly that they turn, in turn deliver that love to other people, even to those who are deemed the least lovable? The question you might be asking is, does this really work? I recently read the story of Catherine and Lewis Laws in Max Lucado's Stories for Your Soul. In 1920, Lewis Laws became the warden of Sing Sing Prison, formerly known as Ossining Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in Ossining, New York. Its name Sing Sing was adapted from the Sint Sink Native American tribe, which had one occupied, once occupied that uh, neighboring area. When Lewis took the job, Catherine, his wife, was warned by several people to stay away from the prison, to never enter the prison itself. Just see that as her husband's job that, that she mentally had nothing to do with. It would not be a safe place. And she was warned to never take their three daughters there. But she ignored that advice when she heard about the first formal basketball game that was taking place in the prison. They'd set up some intramural leagues. And she went and she brought along her three daughters and they all sat in the bleachers with the inmates. When she was interviewed about this, Catherine said, my husband and I are going to take care of these men and I believe they will take care of me. I don't have to worry. Can you imagine that? Soon she heard about a man in the prison who'd gone blind. So she learned Braille in order to teach this man Braille so he could read. Then she learned of some men who were losing their hearing, so she learned American Sign Language so that she could communicate with them. And for the next 16 years, in a variety of ways, she impacted the hearts of men who served time at Sing Sing. She loved first, and many of them began to love back. That became apparent one day in 1937 when Lewis Laws didn't show up for work Soon the word was out that Catherine Laws had died in a car accident. She'd been hit on the side of the road. And as was often the custom then, her body was placed for viewing in the family home, which was about three quarters of a mile from the prison. The next day when the warden took his morning walk to the prison, he noticed a large gathering of men who were all lined up against the fence and near the, the front gate of the prison. And they were there silently waiting for him, many of them with tears in their eyes, because Catherine, who had loved them in ways that surprised them, had died. He noticed that their faces were solemn. No one moved or spoke. Max Lucado writes that they had come to stand as close as they could to the woman who had loved them in such surprising ways, even though they were locked up inside a prison. And that prompted Warden Laws to do something he'd never done before and that I doubt would be done today. He spoke to the men behind the gate and he said, all right, men, you can go. Just be sure to check in tonight. And he opened the gates. Among them were a number of the nation's toughest criminals, murderers, robbers, you get the idea. Some of them had been given life sentences. And he unlocked the gates, and the prisoners walked silently without being escorted by guards to the home of Catherine Laws, three-quarters of a mile away, to pay their respects. And every single one of them returned without incident. Max ends the story with these words. 
Real love changes people. Or you could say it this way. God's love for his people is so great that he frees us and empowers us to love others generously. Let's love first because he first loved us. Father God, thank you for allowing us to ponder over the scriptures and their impact on our lives. We invite you to make us into the kind of people who do things that others would see as ridiculous and extravagant, knowing that you have loved us in such a way that you've equipped us to love the unlovable, or at least those who think that they're unlovable. Thank you for showing us that a measure of your love extends to the entire world whether they believe in you or not. But there are waves and waves of love that are available to those who reach out to you, who call on your name, who embrace your son, who put their faith in you. Lord, hear the whispers of somebody who might right here today, right now, be quietly saying, Lord, I want to know this kind of love. Lord, I am trusting you. I'm acknowledging that Jesus is your very own son. Help me take steps on the pathway toward living this kind of life. Fill us with your spirit. Make us new inside. Redeem us from our sins. Make us messengers to those who need to find that redemption. In Jesus' name.